You may have already noted in our service guide that our text will be verses 8 through 11. And we will get there in just a minute, but there are some very definite connections that go all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 17. And we need to make those in order to really profit to the fullest from our text. And if you go back to chapter 3 and verse number, I'm sorry, verse 16, if you'll look up there, you can see an event that is noted. And that event in chapter 3 and verse 16 in the life of Jesus was what? Jesus, when he was when he was baptized and you're either not getting there yet or you're not ready to be responsive and interactive so uh, Matthew 3 and verse 16 tells us about Jesus being what good Jesus being baptized and the baptism of Jesus we noted as we gave attention to the details of that event was something of a commissioning of our Lord uh, at about the age of 30 um, for his public ministry. It really was different than what we have today as New Testament Christian baptism. In, in the life of the Lord, uh, verse number 17, I'm sorry, the end of verse 16 tells us that the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And in verse 17, all that were around heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, in a commissioning service that we would have today for a missionary, the ordination of a new pastor, um, very often there will be leadership of the church that will come and lay their hands on this one that we're commissioning and pray over them and, and commend them to the work that God has called them to. But in the Lord's case, it was as if, I don't mean to be tried about this, but it was as if the Holy Spirit descending and the Father and His voice, and even to a lesser degree, perhaps John the Baptist, it's as if they were all coming together to lay their hands on and commission Jesus to His public ministry that He's now embarked on. But then we move from that scene right into chapter 4, the first word of chapter 4 is the word then, and it's not just you know, there in, in the record to help us move. Mark's account says, and immediately. So chronologically, right after that commissioning, before there's a record of any ministry taking place, the Holy Spirit in verse 1, as you can see, leads Jesus to a place of isolation in the wilderness to face some one-on-one -on -one temptations presented by the devil himself. And we can view these temptations or these testings as, as further preparation for the Lord's ministry. And, and as we say that, it really is hard for us to comprehend how the Lord Jesus can learn anything. But the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 tells us plainly that there was a maturing uh, in the part, on the part of our Lord that took place through the testings, through the things which he suffered. And all of these observations are witness to us, again, that God will use various testings. 
And he will use various difficulties in our lives to bring us to the place of being more useful in his hands as servants of his. He took the captain of our salvation. That's how Hebrews refers to it. He took the captain of our salvation and perfected him through the things which he suffered. He certainly is going to take you and I through various tests and temptations to mature us to be even more useful instruments in his hands. And in our Lord's case, verse 2 here of chapter 4 tells us that Jesus had not eaten in 40 days. And in verse number 3, the devil seizes on that to appeal to Jesus to display his supposed divine power. And I'm not saying supposed as if we're in doubt, but the devil says, all right, I just heard, we all heard your father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If you really are the divine son as supposed to be, then you have the power to do this. You have the power to turn stones into bread. Display your divine power to meet the needs of your humanity. As a man, he had to eat and had been 40 days without. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that when Jesus left heaven and condescended to take on the form of a man to be the savior of men, Philippians 2 tells us that he let go of his right to display the power of his deity on his own. And when he responded to the devil in verse number 4 by quoting from the scripture, he quoted from a text in Deuteronomy that says, as we have it here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And what he was saying there is, I do not have instruction from my father that this is the way he wants me to meet my need. I do need to eat, but I don't have instruction from him to display my divine power to meet the need of my humanity in in this situation. And again, the context of that passage in Deuteronomy 6 was the children of God in uh, the children of Israel, in their own wilderness wanderings, having to wait on the Lord to provide their food in his time, in his way, and in keeping with his instructions. And Jesus intended to exercise that same kind of humble dependence on God to have his needs met. And we're still challenged today when we face various physical and material needs of of multiple sorts to not take things into our own hands and go outside of the boundaries of scripture to see our needs met we're challenged again to continue to trust and continue to obey and stay in the pathways of faithfulness and watch the lord meet the need and when jesus passed that test the second in the second test the devil shifted his strategy And he now seized on this professed dependence of the Lord and urged him to display that dependence in an extreme fashion. Verse number 5 tells us the devil took Jesus to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, 
And he took him right up to, as you can see there, the pinnacle of the temple that jutted out over the edge of the Kidron Valley. And I did not stand on the edge of the temple compound, but I had been up there and I've stood across on the other side of the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane area and looked up. And Josephus, a first century writer, tells us that from the edge of that compound down to the bottom of that valley, it's about a 450 foot drop. We were talking um, as a family this week about the fact that that's like a football field and a half of another. So to cast himself off of that would be certain death and it would absolutely be a gruesome death on top of that. But the devil suggests in verse 6 that Jesus should do just that. He says, cast yourself off. You know, jump off the edge. And continuing on in verse 6, you can see he appeals to the scripture as support for taking that extreme step. For it is written, and I trust you have a marginal note right there, Psalm 91 is the scripture he cites. The devil is quoting the scripture in his appeal to Jesus. And what he quotes is from a context where the Bible says that someone with a special relationship to the Father is so secure that angels would protect you from your foot so much as being cut on the stone should you fall. Well, if that's the case, and you're the divine Son, just claim that scripture by faith and prove it by jumping off and let your Father and His angels rescue you. I mean, this is take a leap of faith that will kill you if he doesn't step in and show just how much you trust him. The response of Jesus in verse 7 is to quote another text of Scripture that makes it clear it is wrong to presume on God's intervention in a way that almost demands uh, a miracle, a miracle on demand, so to speak. And the fact is that, as we know later, in the Father's will, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. And even his closest disciples try to persuade him not to go there because you're going to be arrested. Your life might be taken. Thomas ends up saying when Jesus won't be persuaded to turn away, let's just all go and die with him. Jesus will eventually voluntarily submit to crucifixion. And remember, he said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. And on the cross, he is going to say, Father, into thy hands I what? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. So he is going to trust ultimately right at the moment of his death. He's going to trust his spirit completely into the hands of his father. But he is not on a whim and certainly not at the solicitation of the devil going to presume on his father and take a step of presumption. And with that test, we now move into new material we have not been to and a consideration of the third temptation. And you can see in verse number 8 that they move to the vantage point of what is described here as an exceeding high mountain. And we have to know as we continue to read that there is something supernatural at a certain level taking place 
because it says from that mountain, he showed him what? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now, the fact is, there is no mountain in the world, and certainly not in that particular region of Israel, that would be high enough to view all the kingdoms of the world. So what's the point even of going into the mountain? It does seem that the point was to get Jesus up above the immediate surroundings and from that elevated position get him thinking about the expansiveness of of the world as a whole. And again, beyond that, there has to be something supernatural that is taking place. It's as if the devil says, look, I know you can see it all. And just look at all of that. Think about the whole world. Part of the devil's strategy then at this point is to use what the eyes could see. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world. The appeal is to what 1 John refers to as the lust of the what? The lust of the eyes. It isn't that the eyes themselves are are lustful, but something is presented to the eyes that seems so desirable that it stimulates other passions. All the way back in Genesis, Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasant to the what? And pleasant to the eyes. Achan saw the rich spoil in Jericho, and it moved him to disobey clear instructions that God had communicated through Joshua. But something looks so enjoyable, so beautiful, so perfectly suited to be completely satisfying that a man is compelled to pursue it right now and not wait any further. And the devil is attempting to appeal on that same basis. Look, see all of those kingdoms? See all of the glory of that? You could have it right now. Again, there is supernatural dynamics involved. (laughs) It had to be something of incredible splendor to not only see the kingdoms, but the glory of them. Just last week, I was talking with someone about the last time we we drove out west, western United States, northwest in particular. We drove from Wisconsin to Colorado, where we had some family, and then we went through the mountains to Utah and ministered with uh, some missionaries in Mormon country. And then we went up through Wyoming and Montana, big sky country, on into Washington State for a wedding and... We saw Mount Rainier and actually drove around Mount Rainier a little bit. And then we drove back across the Badlands and the Plains. And, and I, I'm saying all of this quickly. And uh, I wish I could show you all the splendor of that. Some of you that have done it, you, you know what it's like. But, I mean, within just really less than two weeks of traveling, we, we saw open skies that continued as far as your eyes can see. Mountains that in early August were completely snow-capped. Deep ravines with great rivers and incredible waterfalls. Lush pasture land. Dry, arid wilderness that seemed like 
um, nothing moved but sand and tumbleweeds, and all of that within a short time. And again and again, we actually exclaim, wow, look at that. You know, I grew up in Washington, and then I grew up in Colorado, and would talk to my wife about, you know, how much you can fall in love with the land. And my wife didn't really understand that. She grew up in Chicago. Okay? <clears throat> and, and all that was around there at best was cornfields, if you happen to get out and see it. And we went to Colorado and through the West and up into Washington. And she's like, now I can understand this. <clears throat> Don't just think, though, of, of, of the Western U.S. Think of South America and its Amazon River and the jungles. Now think about... Um, Africa, some friends of ours wrote about um, their little girl's sandwich being attacked by a baboon. And that blew my mind. <laughs> you could go on to speak of Europe and the Middle East and Southeast Asia and Australia. And, but, but don't just think of natural wonders. Think of the most magnificent structures ever erected and the pomp and the pageantry of, of cultures. Uh, the systems of power and wealth in great dynasties, the kinds of things that again and again just make us stop and be in awe. And, and one man said about this temptation that there's an unintentional kind of testimony to the greatness of Jesus by virtue of the breadth of what was offered him. Um, you'll sometimes know that the stature of a man by what it takes to appeal to him. And when the devil wanted to appeal to the Lord, he knew that what had to be included in the package in terms of temptation was everything you could see in terms of the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of this world. Now for the devil to offer to give all of that to Jesus really involved quite a provocative claim. I mean, he's, he's claiming to have some kind of control over all of that. That he could turn over. That it was within his power to give. And there is a point at which fallen humanity is under the devil's extensive influence. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes him as the God of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote that all of us in time past, before Christ, lived our lives under the influence of this world, under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now energizes the children of disobedience. 1 John says the whole world lies in the wicked one. Jesus would say himself on three occasions that, that, that the devil was the prince of this world. So there's a level at which Jesus would not dispute the devil's claim that he at least for a time had some jurisdiction over the kingdoms of this world. But how would offering that to Jesus have been a temptation for him? And as we work to understand the nature of that appeal, we need to be reminded that God the Father had already told his son 
that he would give him rule over an exclusive worldwide kingdom. I'm not having us turn to some of these passages this morning for time's sake, but Daniel reported on a prophetic vision of some interaction between God the Father and the Messianic Son, which was yet to come. Daniel chapter 7, if you're taking notes, in verse number 13, he said that one like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, and in verse 14, there was given unto him, listen to this, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The Father has already committed to the Son that he's going to have an exclusive worldwide kingdom over all the peoples in all lands. In Psalm, in the second Psalm, again, the prophesied messianic king says, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. And he said, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Jesus had been assured already that his rightful inheritance from his father was all people everywhere and the whole earth was his possession. He's the rightful inheritor of the rule of all of those kingdoms and, as the devil said, even the glory of all those kingdoms. But he is supposed to receive the jurisdiction of that from who? It was the Father who said, You're my son. Ask of me and I will give it to you. Jesus is supposed to receive all of that from the Father. And now the devil, who really only has limited and temporary jurisdiction, the devil is suggesting that he will hand over the jurisdiction of all of that right now instead of the Father, instead of, instead of Jesus having to wait on the Father. And really, it's almost like this, and I, I'm saying this, and I, I trust you understand the context. I'm, I'm the devil's advocate, as we sometimes say. It's as if the devil is, is saying, look, <laughs> I don't know when your father is ever going to get around to giving it to you, but I'm willing to give it to you right now. The appeal was really, why keep waiting? For what you say is rightfully yours anyway. And quite frankly, you can shortcut some of the difficulty that would be involved. I mean... You just, I'll give it to you right now. Why keep waiting? And, 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 you know, think about this. Isn't it? Isn't it God's ultimate will for you to have it anyway? Why wait so long to get it? Why endure all of what you're enduring by waiting? And brethren, by this point, the Lord had already known 30 years of hardship. 
Now, those years have passed so quickly for us, but this is what we think about, and, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. I mean, you have the King of Heaven who condescends to take on a body formed in a woman's womb and be born in a stable, in a cave, and to live a life as much as you and I have lived with all of the humbling dynamics of all of that. All of what he's been enduring. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. His whole life was that in comparison to the glory of heaven. And now, even at the onset of his ministry, he's experienced 40 days of no food. And, and, and brethren, some of you may have known what it is to miss a meal or two in some kind of deprivation. That's probably rare. It may not be that any of us have ever had to miss a meal because the cupboards were that bare. But he's at the onset of his ministry and he's been 40 days without eating. And he's in isolation in the wilderness. And this is just the beginning because what's ahead of him is betrayal by those that were closest to him. And what's ahead of him is physical pain and agony associated with all that would take place through the trials and his crucifixion. What is actually ahead of him even more is separation from the Father at the very thought of which it made him sweat great drops of blood and made him in the experience of the hours of darkness on the cross cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of that was also in the pathway that the Father had laid out for him for obtaining the kingdom. It was go to the cross before you get the crown. The appeal of the devil is just forego having to experience all of that. You've waited long enough already and there's so much more to come. Why wait? For one simple act, you can have what's yours anyway. Think of what that was like for David. If the experience of Jesus seems just too far out there for us. Think about David. David had been told directly by the prophet Samuel that he was God's choice to be Israel's next king. But instead of the prophet anointing him, you're God's choice, and there's a grand celebration to welcome him, instead he is chased for years by the current king Saul. In fact, David said, I was chased like a flea. And he was in a state of much physical fatigue and emotional distress. And when it seemed like it couldn't get any worse, all of a sudden he's in a cave and it's as if God puts Saul and all his men right at his feet. And Saul is sound asleep and his men are sound asleep and David has an opportunity 
just end all this waiting and all of what comes with it end it right now and you could have even said that god put saul right there so he could end it and of course david wavered he moved to the point that he actually cut off saul's garment and then remember that he was smitten by his conscience that even that step was out of line and i'm not going to lift up my hand against the lord's anointed i'm going to wait on god to give me what god says is his will for me i'm going to wait on god to give it to me in his timing in his way and i'm not going to step outside of what i know to be right to get it it is amazing how how committed we can be to waiting on the lord to fulfill his will in his time and give me his best his way for his honor I mean, honestly, you, you know the Lord. You have a tender heart to the things of the Lord. I know that you as God's people, all of us want that. All of us say, absolutely, I'm going to trust my God to give me his best, his way, in his time, for his honor. And in many respects, we can be absolutely content to be right there. And then all of a sudden, we see an opportunity present itself for a shortcut. Or all of a sudden, we see somebody else who seems to have what we hoped God intended for us. Right? And they get it sooner. And maybe they even get it with far less difficulty. And it would only be a little compromise of principle for me to get it too. And right at that moment, we can really, really struggle. It, it might involve the pursuit of a certain special relationship. And we have a lot of young people here. And I am absolutely certain from the scripture that God wants most, if not all of you, to be married in his will, to his very best, and enjoy the full blessing of that. And in some cases, the time and the clock is ticking. And you've been waiting. And other people seem to be getting what you hoped you would get. And they're getting it way before you, and it doesn't seem like they've had nearly the pain and agony that you've had. And it, and it may not be, you know, it may not be the one. I mean, you, obviously, you can think through the scripture, I'm sure that God wants me to be married. It's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> uh, it, it may not be the one. It may even just be a matter of, like, the timing. It could be a special relationship. It could be like what David was facing and, and even what the Lord is facing. It could be a position of leadership. I know the Lord wants me in ministry. And, I mean, they want me. Uh, it, it seems like it's, you know, relatively high profile. There'd be a lot of people I could minister to. And the pay's good. And it's not like I'd have to compromise that much. To take the position. 
I mean, you know, she's a Christian. And he's in church. It's not like it'd be that big of a compromise. Maybe it could even just be a ministry objective. You know, I really believe that God wants me to do such and such. And and how much longer am I going to have to wait before I can do that? And this might not be the best way of doing it, but I mean, I'm sure it's God's will. What could the harm be? Maybe it's even the fact that I've been given ministry. But now in order to keep that ministry, I have to compromise something in order to keep it. And I mean, God wouldn't really want me to throw away ministry that he's given me, would he? And in the face of that kind of appeal by the devil, Jesus tells the devil in verse 10 to do what? Look at it in verse 10, because this is striking. Then saith Jesus unto the devil, do what? Put in your own words. He tells the devil, get out of here. And I, and I want to say to you that, that there are times where we ought to give something extended thought and extended prayer, and we ought to seek counsel. And there are other times that we just have to land and say, no way, devil, I don't need to think about this anymore. Get out of here. And quite frankly, to our own thoughts and the thoughts of our own flesh, there's times we need to say, no way, be done with even considering that. What the devil's suggesting, what my own flesh is entertaining, That thought is so beneath the honor of God, this has to end, it has to end right now, no more. That's how the the Lord responds in this case. We're done here. I'm not thinking about this anymore. And the strength of that response, I'm just taking it in the order in which it came. Because the first thing Jesus says is, no more, not that thought. What you're suggesting is so beneath the honor of God, be out of, be gone, get out of here. But the strength of that response was, again, and I'll just even say it this way, the strength of that response was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He just pulls out the dagger of the Scripture again and says, it is written. And before commenting on the specific content quoted, I I just want to say again, because this, this is now in all three of the temptations, Jesus' response was to get the scripture out there between himself and the devil's temptation. And and I just want to ask you how much of your week involves mental preoccupation with the scripture. Do you have that kind of resource to draw out in the heat of the battle? Because in some cases, the temptation 
can come on you so suddenly that there's no time to run and, as it were, get new weapons. You've got to draw out. You've got to draw out, draw upon what you've either already committed to as a priority or you haven't. There's times it's either there or it isn't there because of the investment you've made in the Word or haven't made in the Word. But then notice, not only is it the Scripture, but notice the truth emphasized in the Scripture that Jesus quotes. He says, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And the text that he quoted from is Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. And again, for time's sake, I won't have you turn there, and and it's not real complex anyway. The context of that is the Lord saying to the children of Israel, when you get into the promised land, and he says, you inherit great blessings that you didn't work for. Okay? You inherit blessing that God has just graciously given to you. You didn't work for it. He said, don't forget who the source of all that blessing is. Because if you forget that the Lord is the source of all true blessing, the day will come where you won't even worship the Lord at all. I'm I'm saying that's what Deuteronomy 6 is. If you get in there and you forget that God's the source of blessing and that all you have is really from God, the day will come when you won't worship the Lord at all. I have often mentioned some bookend statements about God's goodness to us. James wrote in James chapter 1 that every good gift is from where? Every good gift is from above and even says from who? From the Father, he goes on to describe the Father of lights with whom is no variables and your shadow of turning. But every good gift comes from who? <laughs> comes from God the Father. So listen, you and I have never received anything truly good for us that didn't come from God. Right? I mean, every good gift is, is from God. So we have not ever received anything good that didn't come from God. And the psalmist in Psalm 84, verse 11, says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. And then he says, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So, so listen, when I am right with him, I have never and I never could miss out on anything that is really good. That's why I say they're bookend statements. Listen, Every good thing is from God. And when I'm right with God, I have never missed out on any good thing, and I never could. Because he'll never withhold any good thing from me. So the temptation, listen, the temptation to obtain even God's will outside of waiting on God's timing and God's method is never a simple act of compromise. It is always a step of doubt and dishonor. And I'm going to say that again. The temptation to obtain even God's will, but to get it outside of God's timing and God's method, 
It's never a simple act of compromise. It is always an act of doubt and dishonor. The commitment to look to, get, to, look to him to give me what he knows is best in his time and his way is a posture of worship. That's what, the, that's what the Lord is getting to. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve, and the decision is a decision of worship. And I'm going to choose to wait on my Father to give me what is his will, but to give it to me in his time, his way, whatever else I have to endure to get it, I'm going to wait on him to give it to me in his time and his way, because that's the posture of worship. And that fosters even more worship. And that keeps me close to him instead of forgetting him. And that's the most important pursuit of my life. And that's what real ministry is all about anyway. If I want to be in his will, I want to be in his will for his honor and his glory. That's what it's about. So I'm going to wait on him to give me his will in his time, in his way, so that he gets the honor and the glory out of what he gives me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And I don't know.